Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Rob Day to the show. Rob Day is a partner and co-founder at Spring Lane Capital. Rob has been a sustainable resources private equity investor since 2004 and acts or has served as director, observer, and advisory board member to multiple companies in the energy tech and related sectors. Rob also serves on the board at New England Clean Energy Council and the investment committee of the Clean Energy Trust. From 2005 to 2016, he authored the column Clean Tech Investing, which appeared on greentechmedia.com and co-hosted several conferences with that group on the topic of new investment models for the sustainability sector. Rob, how are you doing today? Doing great. How are you doing today, Raj? Rob, I am doing very well, thank you. Rob, where are you located? So today I'm in beautiful downtown Boston, where it's a, a lovely spring day. Spring day at Spring Lane Capital. How's that? <laughs> Perfect. So Rob, I didn't do that on purpose. <laughs> Rob, I want to start with a quote of yours that I took from a Forbes article you wrote in November of last year. And it said that for now, investors need to recognize that a price for carbon is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Can you expand a little on that quote? Sure. Well, maybe as a little bit of background, I originally way, way, way back in the rearview mirror got an economics degree and then ended up working as one of my first jobs out of college at an environmental economics think tank. And so it became hammered into me very early on that one of the major tools for addressing climate change is to have there be a policy-driven price on carbon. Um, And what I've come to realize is that there actually are now a bunch of different prices on carbon, even if there hasn't been one overall U.S. national legislative price put on carbon, because there are all sorts of different regional regulatory schemes that involve prices on carbon. And increasingly, what we're seeing are voluntary adoption of carbon offsets at various prices. And the upshot of which is that there are lots of signs in the marketplace of people being willing to pay for carbon at a wide range of prices. And so it's an interesting transition point because you go from wishing there was a price on carbon to wishing it was a much more efficient market for selling carbon offsets or the like. Recently, I heard it said that someone's speculating that there are going to be the companies, there are going to be the haves and have-nots of carbon. What are your thoughts on that? What do you mean by that, the haves and and have-nots of carbon? The companies that can afford to buy the offsets versus the companies that can't. Interesting. Yeah, there's probably something to that. I guess what I analogize it to are the early days of corporate direct purchases of renewable energy credits, or RECs, right? Where they, in some cases, knew that they needed to make a corporate commitment to purchasing green power, or they saw other reasons why they wanted to purchase green power. 
uh, and, and oftentimes tied to, for instance, running data centers. And so they figured out they had to go do these direct purchases of it because, you know, the markets just weren't as efficient as, uh, as they wanted them to be. Um, you know, I think what that speaks to is the same thing is going to happen with carbon offsets as well, where very large companies that have made big public commitments are probably going to be the early drivers of similar types of purchasing arrangements direct from from carbon offset projects or the like. But interestingly, if I'm right about that being the analogy, that led to a much broader adoption, uh, much broader market acceptance, uh, policymaker acceptance of markets for RECs. Um, and really launched a, a, a tremendous growth of the overall renewables industry by being able to have those early larger sort of halves in your parlance there um, that were able to make those purchases that ended up having a, a pretty strong effect overall beyond just those few companies. I appreciate you sharing that insight. And we started with teasing with Spring Lane Capital. Can you give the audience an overview of Spring Lane Capital and your role at the organization? Yeah, sure. So I'm one of the co-founding partners of Spring Lane Capital. We're a team that's been working together for over uh, a decade now, actually, although Spring Lane isn't uh, that old, but we spun out of a previous um, effort that we were doing to, to form Spring Lane Capital. And at Spring Lane Capital, what we do is we provide what we call catalytic project capital. Um, really, there are so many opportunities out there uh, where innovations over the past few decades Subutility scale innovations in particular are addressing some aspect of sustainability, uh, whether that's in energy, food, water, waste, transportation. Um, and, and these can be very attractive growth markets, but a lot of the entrepreneurs and project developers operating in those markets have a hard time getting their first two to three years worth of project equity. And that's our role. So we step in, we partner with somebody who has a compelling solution and compelling project pipeline. Uh, in one of those uh, verticals or sub-verticals. Um, we uh, stand there not only with their initial two to three years worth of project equity that they need to be able to roll their systems out into the world, but we also bring expertise to help them and relationships to help them. So being able to introduce them to the right you know, EPCs or and engineering firms and the like so that they can be successful with their first few uh, instances of, of deployment of projects as well. And when we do our job right, what we're really doing uh, collectively in, in partnership with those companies and those teams is we're teeing them up for being able to access mainstream infrastructure capital after us. You know, once those companies get those successful few projects with some seasoned revenues and a proven financial structure, um, that is exactly the recipe that we and others cut our teeth on in, in terms of the rooftop solar market and third party capital for that. So that's really what we're doing is we're taking that model that we learned there and applying it to the other 99% of the sustainability universe. Can you give a few examples of projects where you've invested catalytic project capital? Yeah, absolutely. So for instance, we're partnered with a company called Cambrian Innovation. Cambrian has been around for a few years selling a pretty compelling solution in the distributed wastewater treatment space. Um, think about, uh, you know, if you're thinking about like a, a, a food and beverage processing plant, um, there can be some highly organic waste streams that can create some real challenges for the local sewer treatment authority or for, for disposal for the, the actual processing plant. Um, so there's often a compelling need for them to need to, uh, the plants, I mean, uh, to be able to pre-treat their waste, as it were. Or, uh, in fact, one of the things that Cameron can do is actually end up fully recycling the water and, and turn the wastewater into useful water back on, on site. 
Um, they'd been going out there and selling their systems to customers for a number of years, but they they had a bunch of potential customers who said, "Look, you know, this is great. We need this kind of solution, but I don't want to go to my CFO and ask for a few million dollars for a special capex uh, purchase of one of these boxes, and then have to go run the system myself out in my backyard." Uh, can you please just treat my wastewater for me and I'm willing to sign a long-term service contract, which is great. It's a win-win for both the customer and for Cambrian, but somebody still needs to pay for that wastewater treatment project up front. So we partnered with Cambrian. We've enabled them to be able to offer what is really a first in the industry, what they call a water energy purchase agreement, because in some configurations, their system can also generate useful green energy on site. Uh, and they've been able to you know, start introducing that to the marketplace to seemingly really good adoption. Um, and it's unlocked an, an entire new growth vertical for them in offering these services, uh, these turnkey approaches. Um, that's been pretty exciting to watch. Sounds like an interesting project, and I love the idea of water energy purchase agreement. It's definitely unique. Yeah, it's been really great to see you know, how eye-opening it's been for a lot of corporate customers, you know, very, very big ones in the food and beverage processing industry. So in my research for this interview, I came across another phrase that you used, global weirding. Can you share with the audience what you mean by this period of global weirding that we're in? Yeah, and I can't claim credit for that phrase. I forget who came up with it first, but I just, you know, I, I, <laughs> I've always enjoyed it because I think it gets the point across that a lot of the most pressing threats from climate change, you know, over the next decade or two is probably not, you know, the relatively uh, hard to notice on a day by day basis rise of ocean levels. But instead, what seems pretty clear is that um, climate change is driving a lot of higher variability in weather systems. And that causes a lot of disruption. There was just a report that came out earlier this week that billions of dollars of damages were added to the cost of one of the major hurricanes last year um, because of the exacerbating effects of, of climate change on that storm. So you get stronger storms. Um, that's, that's one uh, example of this. Or you know we've seen around the world more prevalence of droughts more prevalence of flood conditions, things like that. Um, you know, it, it just seems like uh, scientists are pointing to the fact that that weather patterns are becoming more extreme and, and stickier in their extremes, and that's what's really going to have a major impact. Because if you think about it, um, droughts and, and and such drive major social disruption uh, that has a lot of knock-on effects on our economy, on our society, on global safety. Um, on just uh, the, the health and safety of, of friends and family uh, near to home. What are your thoughts right now about, because I can tell you quite often, you know, for example, you and I have this conversation right now, we're familiar with some of these issues that are going on, but getting outside of our echo chamber, if outside of our bubble, if you will, how do you convey these messages to people that are essentially outside of our echo chamber? So, yeah, I have a number of folks, obviously, in, in, in my friends and family network or that we encounter in the course of just being part of the overall broader financial community. And it's been interesting to watch over the years the much greater acceptance over time of the fact that climate change is real, that it's happening, and that it needs to be addressed one way or another. Um, I, I used to have more robust conversations with relatives who questioned whether climate change was real and if, even if so, if it was man-made. Uh, that doesn't seem to happen as much anymore. I think the messaging has gotten out in that. Now the question is, what do we do about it? And that's different 
for the context, right? So if you were talking with a member of the fan, uh, uh, you know, of your family and they get it and that climate change is real and it's happening and, you know, needs to be addressed, then it's a question of, but what do we do about that from a policy standpoint? Or what do I do about that in my day-to-day activity? Um, but we end up having a lot of conversations just by dint of being an institutionally backed fund ourselves. We, we end up with a number of conversations with very large financial institutions, global financial institutions, where to them, the question is more around, okay, this seems to be a mega trend. What should we do about it from an investment standpoint? And then what I've always found when you're talking with folks who are coming at things from that mindset is it's just really important to frame things for them in terms of why they should care about the downsides and why they should care about the upsides. And it's important to be able to provide both of those downsides and upsides as part of the picture, uh, because that's, you know, those are both important motivators for different ways that investors approach things. So, you know, that's, that's less than my sort of uh, outside of the the business world conversation. (laughs) Um, But, you know, in in the course of our days here at Springland Capital, we end up having a lot of conversations with people where that's exactly what we're trying to show. And for for me, uh, a key piece of philosophy that I've had for a long, long time, is that if you want people to do a lot more of something, show them how they can make more money by doing it. <laughs> and so if we want to see more climate change solutions propagate out there into the world, it's really good to be able to point out the ones that are profitable and could use a lot more capital. I like that idea a lot. You've been involved in this sector for quite a while now. You mentioned megatrend earlier. When did you see, feel, or realize that these institutions that you were speaking to became aware that this is actually a mega trend. Yeah, it's interesting. So when we started raising our first fund, it was approximately four years ago now. And we were, you know, we had we had spun out of a family office and we were going out there and talking with a lot of these, you know, pension fund managers and endowment managers and sovereign wealth funds. And we have this pretty unique investment model that we're rolling out. And at the time, you know, in a pretty unique sector of sustainability that was still, frankly, largely out of favor. And so it was a a lot of really interesting conversations with them where it was the junior person on their investment team who had been seriously asked, um, but asked in an early way, huh, sustainability, why don't you go start mapping that out? And so their first thought was to try to have conversations with interesting investment managers, and we would be part of that that early conversation for them. Fast forward to by the time we ended up doing the final close on our fund uh, about a year and a half ago, and it was a very different set of conversations. Um, even at those same places, uh, it had graduated to more senior members of the investment of their investment team at those at those institutional uh, investors, um, and, and it was much more about okay, we've done the mapping exercise now. We've come to realize that this is really important. This is going to be a decades long trend that we need to get out in front of, and now we really need to figure out how we can put some money to work in it, right? And, and uh, that that seems to have just even more greatly accelerated over that past year and a half. I mean, I think we all saw just how eager the large investor community has been to put money into sustainability through the SPAC wave that happened at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. Um, as just evidence of, 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 to my mind, as evidence of almost the desperation that a lot of these larger investors are feeling now, that they realize that they need to get out in front of this mega trend, that their investment uh, committee is is uh, you know, is pressing them to put money into it uh, around this trend. 
And so they're, they're really eager to put capital to work now around it. Now it's more about institutional constraints rather than uh, whether they, they bought into the thesis or not. I would agree with that. Now, you were a member of the, it's called the Finance Council member for the Clean Energy for Biden late last year, early this year. You know, an administration can only do so much because of tension and everything else they're working with. What do you feel like after being on the ground or, you know, having your ear to the ground, what do you feel like from a green tech, clean tech perspective should the administration focus on? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been part of some of these early conversations with external people trying to get ideas into the hands of the administration. And also, lest we forget, Capitol Hill that actually ends up writing the legislation that that ends up being passed. Um, I think a lot of what needs to happen is at least being attempted right now. The, the first and foremost thing that the administration needed to do and they've started to do is get us back into um, the Paris Agreement to start making us a serious member of the international community that is going after climate change solutions. Um, so it's gratifying to see that kind of thing happen. I think a lot of uh, what can also be done is done at more of the sort of agency and executive order level. So it's very interesting to see. Um, what the administration is already starting to make noise about uh, in terms of electric vehicles, in terms of just you know vehicle fleet dynamics altogether. Um, then you get to what could actually be put into, into law. And so that's where uh, one thing which I would like to highlight, everybody knows about potential tax extensions, infrastructure spending, et cetera. Um, one little noticed thing that I have thought could be really important uh, there was, I think, $25 billion in the, the original Biden proposal for the infrastructure bill that would be earmarked, the $25 billion would be earmarked for what they called pre-development activities. And the idea there would be to help a lot of project developers get through the development phase costs that uh, they incur when they're trying to stand up projects, and particularly projects that would be built around resiliency, around sustainability, around being able to provide local green impacts in communities that are, uh, you know, subject to uh, disproportionate uh, impacts from climate change and pollution. Um, that that kind of you know support at the pre-development level, I think, is is super important. The the last thing which I think is potentially bigger than you know twenty five billion dollar uh, pocket, but therefore I'm also not sure it will succeed in in the legislative effort. But if it did, it would be great. Is some kind of um, you know cash payout version of tax credits, uh, the tax equity bottleneck in terms of being able to structure and finance projects continues to be there. And while the tax extensions and in, in some cases creation of new tax credit categories, you know that that's all well and good. But especially for smaller scale project developers, it becomes um, pretty difficult for them to access tax equity. And yet it also becomes very difficult for them to go ahead and find the financing for their projects without the tax equity. And so uh, being able to, to, to make it be more accessible um, without having to use tax equity would, would make a big difference. It really would. Now, we'll switch to the crux of our conversation. You've been broadly involved in the clean tech climate change movement, I think, if my math is correct, for about 16, 17 years. Why did you decide to get involved and what drives you? What continues to motivate you? Hmm. So I tell people all the time, I'm an environmental sustainability guy who stumbled into an investment role rather than the other way around. Um, and I am a, a, admittedly an outlier here. I'm, I'm that 
former kid who uh, back in high school was at my local election precinct stumping for Al Gore because at the time he was the only presidential candidate who was talking about climate change, right? And talking about like 1988. Um, and so uh, I've always had a passion for this. I did think that the direction I was going to go was more policy than into, you know, finance. Yeah. And so for me, um, going to college and sort of getting a, a recognition of the power of economics, not just, you know, political science was, was instructive that led me to want to go work in economics uh, around specifically environmental economics, but discovered to my chagrin that I was a highly mediocre economist. And so, um, you know, while I was able to find a really fun and interesting role with an environmental economics think tank, the World Resources Institute, my job was actually going out there and working with big companies, helping them figure out how they could make more money and how they could add to their bottom line by viewing the world through an environmental sustainability lens. And it was an early grounding in exactly what I was talking about before in terms of avoiding downsides and in terms of capturing upsides, importantly, as well. And I, came, I, was, I was at the World Resources Institute surrounded by much smarter economists and lots of you know, really smart data-driven people who were gathering information that, that confirmed and, and particularly highlighted that climate change was going to be the fight of a lifetime. Uh, and I became convinced from my work with companies that the business world was going to be you know, completely fundamental to any successful effort to address climate change. Um, and that the opportunities were there to be able to do that. But it was tough to be able to drive that kind of change from the um, from the standpoint of being at a uh, you know a nonprofit um, you know just sort of waving a stick around hoping to gently poke the big elephants to slightly change their course of direction um, and so I went off to business school to figure out how to become uh, a clean energy entrepreneur came out of business school at a spectacularly bad time to be an entrepreneur of any stripe. <laughs> So went into management consulting and then left to go figure out what clean energy startup I was going to join then. And in the meantime, uh, through some old connections, took a part-time gig helping uh, what was then a fledgling um, clean tech venture capital firm in San Francisco. And eventually that led to them bringing me on full-time. And eventually over the course of those 17 years, uh, 17 years later into what frankly was kind of an accidental career in investing that now seems to be what I'm going to be doing for a long time to come. It seems like a beautiful scenic route to take. You said earlier, you always had a passion for this. I'm assuming the environment. Where did that passion stem from? Well, growing up, uh, my father worked on the Senate and Environment, uh, Senate Environment and Public Works Committee as a staffer, helped write key pieces of legislation, worked at EPA. Uh, and so it was always steeped in me to care about environmental things. And then as um, you, know, you get older and start paying attention, uh, I think I saw recently there was some seminal work that was done you know, back in the early 70s that people were already publishing about, you know, the likelihood of, of pretty uh, strong damages from climate change. So, you know, it was always something that um, I'd identified as something that I cared about, uh, even if a lot of other people just in day to day just sort of thought about environment as only being a pollution issue, right? Um, but climate change has always seemed like it's, it's something, <laughs> it's something we definitely need to try to address. So on your scenic route, 17, 18 years, what's the most valuable lesson that you would say you've learned about yourself on your journey? Mm, that's a great question. 
Well, one of the things that I've learned is that everybody's got strengths and gaps, and it's really important to find a team that you work well with uh, and partners outside of your team that can help facilitate filling in those gaps and also that can leverage your strengths. For instance, at Spring Lane Capital, the three co-founding partners, there's myself with more of a background, frankly, in growth equity than project finance. And yet, because of the stage we're stepping in, we're identifying and, and working with uh, growth stage companies and developers for the most part. Then there's my colleague, Christian, who's got a background. Again, he's, he's got a, a, a nice, fun journey of his own. But one of the key points uh, along the way for that journey is became quite an expert in management team evaluation and coaching management teams to high execution. And this is a very obviously execution-driven model. Um, then my third partner, Nikhil, again, he's had a lot of different uh, hats over the years, but uh, for the past decade and a half, he's been very focused on project finance and structured finance. And being able to take those skill sets together is what allows us to, to approach this type of opportunity that we approach. Uh, and then to take that one step backwards and, and look at it, what we're doing is trying to team up with teams who themselves recognize, okay, we need to go in the direction of utilizing project capital for the deployment of the projects that we're developing, whether they think of themselves as an entrepreneur who's selling blank as a service, or whether they think of themselves as a project developer who's you know, building projects. Um, that all looks sort of like build, own, operate to us, right? Um, but in most cases, they're standing in to be able to do this for the first time, uh, at least in their configuration with those types of projects. Uh, and so a recognition on their part that, okay, we're going to need not only capital, but if possible, to be able to tap into expertise, how to work with EPCs, how to you know, use the right project management tools, um, how to think about procurement strategically. You know, That's the kind of stuff that then the right financial partner for them should also be able to bring to the table because everybody should have a shared, uh, a shared goal of making those projects successful. So you know, to, to more directly answer your question, it's it's really about recognizing, you know, and just being sober about recognizing your strengths and your gaps, whether that's as an individual investor or whether that's as an organization, and purposely seeking to leverage one while filling in the other. Well, we've looked backwards at lessons learned. Let's walk into the future. Two-part question. It's 2030. If Forbes or Business Week were to write a headline about Springling Capital One, what would it read? And two, regarding the climate movement, what would you like to see in the future? Interesting. Um, yeah, so by 2030, uh, I, I don't think anybody's going to be writing headlines about Spring Lane One. <laughs> because, <laughs> um, you know, these are these are ten-year uh, fun lives, and also uh, less technically speaking, you know, one of the great advantages of being able to invest into decentralized infrastructure like we are is that while these can be you know long-lived assets still, and we're investing in the you know sometimes projects that have 20, 30-year contracts associated with them, the actual construction phase is much smaller than you get at utility scale or like airport scale construction. And so for us, what that means is we're able to identify partners. Like I said, we, we, we give them their first two to three years worth of project equity. Uh, we hopefully send them on their way. So while I don't think there'll be too many headlines about our fund, what I really hope 
those headlines would be would be about the companies that we partnered with. That you know, this it, it's a headline story about what a fast growth we're seeing uh, among the you know the wastewater treatment industry of this this WEPA phenomenon, for instance, the Water Energy Purchase Agreement phenomenon. You know, and and we've we've faded into the background because our role has been largely complete at that point as financial partners and as catalysts. Um, but still, you know, what, if we've done our job right, we've helped get these companies on a, on a really strong growth path. What was the second part of the question? Regarding climate change, the, the climate change movement. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's hard as somebody who has been doing this for a few decades now um, <laughs> to, to feel too much optimism ever. But at the same time, I've just never seen so much seriousness of action. Uh, not you know, There's still more talk than action, but still, there's a great deal of seriousness of action as well now. And the headlines that I would hope we would be writing in 2030 would be around how much progress we've been able to make towards these net zero goals that are now being announced. Um, I think, you know, as with everything uh, in almost every context, people are setting goals that then the goals will slip or the goals will be met in ways that weren't really the, the intention. Um, but at the same time, it all is, is progress towards a common goal. And if you had asked me a few years back, whether we'd be seeing a wave of very large companies and, and countries and regions declaring that they were going to go carbon neutral by a date that would be within my lifetime, I would be surprised to hear that. And so the fact that people are setting these goals and they do seem to be serious about tackling it, I, I hope a lot of what's going to be written about it is about the progress made. Now, I don't want to sound too Pollyannish about it because that'll be progress made in terms of what, what you would call current emissions. We still have now stockpiled way too much carbon dioxide and, and other greenhouse gases into, into the atmosphere. The climate, unfortunately, is still going to be getting worse at that time. And so the headlines are also going to be probably dominated by even more extreme weather events and the like. Um, so, you know, it will be interesting to see that interplay. But I do feel like this decade is going to be a decade of action. I mean, not only because it has to be, but because we're starting to see real signs of it. And that at least is the encouraging side. You know, again, it could be that echo chamber, but I feel the same way. I feel like this decade is going to be a pivotal decade. And I, I feel like the conversations are louder. And to your point, it'll be interesting to see how much or yeah, how much action follows the conversation. Yeah. And what, what form that action takes. That's the key, too. We continue to have, in my opinion, a really dumb debate about whether we need to be pushing for new innovations or whether we need to be pushing for greater scaling up of the current solutions. And the obvious answer is both. So, you know, it's sort of a false debate that, that goes on. Uh, what I think we should not just expect but demand to see over this decade is that the current solutions that are on offer get a lot of support because, for one thing, they increasingly are very attractive financially so there should be a lot of capital and a lot of uh, policy support and the like that that goes into promoting the scaling up of of existing solutions and energy efficiency and renewables um in you know other aspects uh, you know across the energy food water waste transportation landscape um and we should be seeing you know a lot more r&d into the new innovations that we're also going to be. so I think if we don't meet that litmus test in this decade, you're exactly right. It'll be a pivotal decade, but not in the way that we want. I think we should take a page out of the improv playbook and just yes and. Exactly. So last question, and this could be professional or personal. If you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? Hmm. So when I talk, I do have a lot of conversations with people 
who are starting out in their career or they're thinking about transitioning their career and they want to be able to get into sustainability and they want to get into potentially you know sustainability oriented investing or as an entrepreneur and they always ask for you know advice on what's their next step what should they do next to be able to do that and as you can tell from my own career story arc i'm a firm believer that you know you you, you sort of set your goals on on two year increments early on in your career and you go ahead and take opportunities where you're going to learn a lot i think that you know a lot of folks don't realize where they are destined to end up and that is totally okay you know i thought i was going to be a clean energy entrepreneur and instead i end up being an investor and i get to work with a lot of cool clean energy entrepreneurs that's the kind of you know thing that's going to happen to a lot of people in their career so my one piece of advice is don't agonize over whether the choice you have today uh, in terms of the next step in your career is the perfect one for you pick one that you are going to be excited to tackle uh, every day for the next two years. And then at the end of those two years, reassess and look at your choices at that point. Um, I, I once worked with somebody who was very smart, who, who, who was pretty insistent upon that, that two year at a time timeframe. And that doesn't mean you switch jobs every two years. He had been doing the same job for a decade, but it does mean you put your head down, you do what you're doing for two years, you get the absolute most you can out of it. And then you take that step back and figure out whether it's time to tack and head in a slightly different direction to get towards the ultimate goal you're working towards, or whether you're, it's, you know, full steam ahead, if I can completely mix my uh, nautical metaphor. <laughs> Rob, I love the idea of pick one that you're excited to tackle, put your head down and follow it for two years. I think that's a great place to end off. I really appreciate your time today, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.